May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So last week we began our season of creation and we continue it this week. So as I said last week and have said in the uh, parish magazine, the season of creation is uh, an ecumenical and worldwide uh, feast, season, it's not really a feast, uh, and normally it runs from the 1st of September until the 4th of October, um, but I'm away for three of those Sundays and that seemed foolish. Uh, and also I'm moving a motion at Synod where I talk about this and I thought well, it would be kind of useful if I've had a crack at it before I stand up at Synod and talk about it. Uh, Synod is one of those Sundays that I'm away during that period that's in the 20-something of September. So this is the period in the annual church calendar that runs from the 1st of September to the 4th of October. It's a time dedicated to God as creator and sustainer of all life. It's a time to recall that this is God's world and that this planet and all who live in it belong to God. During the season of creation, Christians around the world rejoice together. We rejoice that we're called to honour God, the Creator, by loving creation and each other. It usually begins on the 1st of September, the day of prayer for creation that was named by that, by the Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople in uh, around 1989. So the Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople is kind of like the Archbishop of Canterbury, but for the Greek Orthodox churches. So it doesn't quite have the power of the Pope, but probably is a little bit more authoritative than the Archbishop, somewhere in the middle there. The first amongst equals, amongst all the, the bishops of the Greek Orthodox Church. Uh, and um, a number of other churches over the next decade, decade or two thought that that was a good idea to have a Sunday uh, for praying for creation. Um, but then about seven or eight years ago it was decided that a bigger season was needed. Uh, and so they went from the 1st of September, which was the Orthodox date, through to the 4th of October, which is the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi, uh, which kind of incorporates the Catholics and then the Protestants just kind of jump on in there. So it is uh, ecumenical. It's probably one of the most ecumenical things we do, uh, and it's worldwide. Um, so if you go on the internet, you can find resources from churches across the world, including uh, a number of Anglican provinces, and it's a, it's a season that is supported by the Anglican Communion. Um, so one of the videos that I could show is from Archbishop Justin Bobby encouraging churches to engage in the season. Unfortunately, most of them are for last year's season because I'm doing it early. Um, during this ecumenical time, uh, some will pray, some will do hands-on projects, some will be engaged in advocacy, and uh, week before last, the uh, Young people of the Diocese of Wellington invited the church to send in uh, um, submissions to the select committee about the zero carbon bill. Uh, and uh, others will just try to make small changes to their lives. So uh, out the front there are some sheets with um, so the wrong dates and their English and their last years. But uh, for each day during that period, from the 1st of September to 
October the 4th, they had ideas about what we could do. And a lot of them are translatable to this context. So if you're interested in kind of doing that and thinking about what we might do as individuals and maybe out of that as a church, I invite you to take one of those sheets at the end of the service. So we started today with the Genesis reading, which weirdly, I didn't check this, um, finished one verse early. So I will now have to read that one verse. The all-important verse, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And we could go on, but that's kind of the, the guts of it. So there are a number of ways of reading those two verses in particular. About 30 years ago, I was in South Australia, and uh, a friend, a colleague, and I uh, were, um, we spent a month in Australia visiting youth ministries, diocesan and synodical um, youth ministries within the Anglican and Uniting Churches. Uh, and it was a life-changing event. And we started off down in South Australia, and we were at an Anglican youth event. Uh, this is an aside, but uh, it was when Australia was grappling with the issue of the ordination of women. So there was a lot of young people, and they said, what do you think about this? We're not sure. And I went, I really don't understand the issue. We have women priests. In fact, we have a woman bishop. And they went, you have a woman bishop? And I went, yes, and it's quite good. And they were like, oh, wow. So there was that. But also uh, the archbishop came, and uh, he had a kind of Q&A, as archbishops do when they come to those kind of events, and he was asked a question about environmentalism, and he gave the pretty stock standard domination understanding of that passage we just heard. And the domination understanding is uh, that uh, human beings have been, have been given dominion over the earth. That is, that this world has been given to us, and we can use the resources of this world as we see fit. We can use them for our economic benefit, and we don't have to worry about the cost. The number one priority is using the resources of this world to create wealth. My father was a big fan of that view, and he made me take a photograph of a bumper sticker in Hawaii once which said, if you're unemployed and hungry, eat an environmentalist. So... <laughs> this understanding of creation has undergirded the West's approach to the environment for a long time. And to be fair, it has allowed us to become the economic powerhouses of the last few centuries. Much of our advances in science and uh, the pulling of millions of people out of poverty has been based on that understanding. We have been given dominion over, the, over, the, over creation. We can see it, use it as we see fit. But even then I didn't agree with that understanding of Scripture. And I so wanted to offer an alternative view but I was a young priest and a guest, and so I bit to my tongue. But that archbishop left, and I stayed at that youth event, and then there were more conversations about the environment. 
and I was able to offer an alternative view of how we might understand that passage. So what's an alternative understanding of having dominion over the world? Well, the first point is that this world is God's. It belongs to God and not to us. That's a very important theological point. And while it is God's gift, it is still God's, and it is to be seen and treated as God's. Secondly, we are made in the image of God. That verse 26 is very clear about that. And and how does God act in that passage? Well, God is creating and life-giving. So if we are made in the image of God, then we too are made to be creative and life-giving. Our relationship with creation should be marked by those qualities. As image-bearers, we are invited to join God's work of creating and life-giving. And that is a markedly different way of seeing creation from a resource that we can simply use for economic gain. And this understanding is actually supported by the idea of having dominion, which we usually read as having domination. The Hebrew word that we translate to have dominion is rabba. I'm probably not saying that right because I never did Hebrew. Rabba means kingly rule. And there are lots of examples of poor kings who simply use their subjects for their own economic gain. But the ideal was always... If, if a king lived in the way of God, they would rule with the long-term good of all their subjects, starting with the poorest being paramount. If you read the Torah, if you read the prophets, a king was to rule with the long-term benefit of all their subjects, particularly the poorest, being the most important thing. Our dominion then is to live in such a way that the long-term good of all, including the world we live in, God's gift to us, is paramount. This way of understanding dominion is also supported by the second creation story in Genesis 2, which talks about stewardship. And that way of understanding dominion stands in stark contrast to the ideas offered by the Archbishop and many other bishops and archbishops and my father over time. The season of creation then invites us to stand in that second understanding of dominion. It provides us an opportunity to join in the worldwide church Catholic, to hear again the invitation to live in the ways of live in ways to join God's creating and life-giving work. And some of the resources call this living richly. Living richly is when we joyfully respond to the goodness and generosity of God. We grow in our vocation as image-bearers of God. And we act in the hope that God is reconciling all things. The season also provides us an opportunity to acknowledge that we have often not lived this way. We are offered an opportunity to repent for all the ways we have failed to live ritually, which is why we had a slightly different confession this morning. A few weeks ago at this service, I talked about repenting on Trinity Sunday, repenting being not so much about being sorrow, sorry, but uh, having a bigger mind. 
gaining a bigger understanding, going beyond how we see things. And we need to do that when it comes to our relationship with creation. We need to let go of the limited and limiting ways we see God and the ways of God, particularly in terms of our relationship with creation. The season of creation also offers us an opportunity to lament the consequences of this failure. When we do this, we offer our neighbours ways of reverencing this world and to live that protects the most vulnerable. We have much to repent. We have much to lament. I could talk a lot about that, but instead I'm going to show you a video uh, of Greta Thunberg, who is now a 16-year-old Swedish schoolgirl. So after the uh, United Nations report last year, she decided that she would uh, strike from school and would go to Parliament and hand out literature to, to the politicians to help them take climate change more seriously. Uh, and some of her friends started to join her. Uh, and in Sweden, that caused a bit of a stir because her mother's recently famous. So as a bit of a movie star, so she attracted some, uh, some of the media attention. And she's also autistic, so she was much more determined about this than some other young people. So, uh, well, that grew, didn't it? And so far this year, there have been two climate change strikes from students across the world, which has created quite a bit of controversy in this country about whether young people should strike about this issue. Uh, but she is fiercely determined, and because of that, has been invited to speak in a number of forums. So uh, the one we are going to see was when she went to Davos, to the World Economic Forum, where a lot of the uh, world leaders, uh, political and economic, were gathered, uh, and she was provided an opportunity to speak. This is her speech. Our house is on fire. I am here to say our house is on fire. According to the IPCC, we are less than 12 years away from not being able to undo our mistakes. In that time, unprecedented changes in all aspects of society needs to have taken place, including a reduction of our CO2 emissions by at least 50%. And please note that those numbers do not include the aspect of equity, which is absolutely necessary to make the Paris Agreement work on a global scale, nor does it include tipping points or feedback loops like the extreme powerful methane gas being released thawing Arctic permafrost. At places like Davos, people like to tell success stories, but their financial success has come with an unthinkable price tag. And on climate change, we have to acknowledge that we have failed. All political movements in their present form have done so. And the media has failed to create broad public awareness. But Homo sapiens have not yet failed. Yes, we are failing, but there is still time to turn everything around. We can still fix this. We still have everything in our own hands. But unless we recognize the overall failures of our current systems, we must probably, most probably, don't stand a chance. 
we are facing a disaster of unspoken sufferings for enormous amounts of people. And now is not the time for speaking politely or focusing on what we can or cannot say. Now is the time to speak clearly. Solving the climate crisis is the greatest and most complex challenge that Homo sapiens has a, have ever faced. The main solution, however, is so simple that even a small child can understand it. We have to stop the emissions of greenhouse gases. And either we do that or we don't. You say nothing in life is black or white, but that is a lie, a very dangerous lie. Either we prevent a 1.5 degree of warming or we don't. Either we avoid setting off that irreversible chain reaction beyond human control or we don't. Either we choose to go on as a civilization or we don't. That is as black and white as it gets. There are no grey areas when it comes to survival. Now we all have a choice. We can create a transformational action that will safeguard the future living conditions for humankind. We can continue with our business as usual and fail. That is up to you and me. Some say that we should not engage in activism. Instead, we should leave everything to our politicians and just vote for change instead. But what do we do when there is no political will? What do we do when the politics needed are nowhere in sight? Here in Davos, just like everywhere else, everyone is talking about money. It seems that money and growth are our only main concerns. And since the climate crisis is a crisis that has never once been treated as a crisis, people are simply not aware of the full consequences of our everyday life. People are not aware that there is such a thing as a carbon budget, and just how incredibly small that remaining carbon budget is. And that needs to change today. No other current challenge can match the importance of establishing a wide public awareness and understanding of our rapidly disappearing carbon budget that should and must become a new global currency and the very heart of future and present economics. We are now at a time in history where everyone with any insight of the climate crisis that threatens our civilization and the entire biosphere must speak out in clear language no matter how uncomfortable and unprofitable that may be. We must change almost everything in our current societies. The bigger your carbon footprint is, the bigger your moral duty. The bigger your platform, the bigger your responsibility. Adults keep saying we owe it to the young people to give them hope. But I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. And then I want you to act. I want you to act as if you would in a crisis. I want you to act as if the house was on fire. Because it is.
So I have some questions. So how do you respond to all of that? What questions do you have about that? And what would you like to say in response? So I invite you to gather in little groups and have a conversation for a couple of minutes about how you would respond, what questions you have, and what you would like to say.